This episode of the only podcast about movies was recorded a little differently due to Shahir being a good husband. I want to stress that. He had to record in a different room of his home and not a closet filled with clothes. Therefore, you might hear a slight echo on his recording, but he did a fantastic job cleaning it up. And hopefully you would have never noticed if I didn't call it out at the top of the episode. With all that in mind, enjoy the show. What's up, Internet? He had a mother. My name is Matthew Kroll. And if you're going to insult me, don't use cliches. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film I've been practicing the pronunciation <laughs> of, and I will still mess up when I do it right now, even though I am killing time before I have to actually say it. Bakaro. Bakaro? Bakaro? I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just, potentially. Uh, Bak- I, no, it's actually, it's Bakarao. Bakarao? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was trying it for a while as well, and I, and I know I misspelled the U, the second U for the whole time this week as we were writing Same. it everywhere. I was like, Bakarao. I thought it was Baka, not Baku. Yeah, it's Bakarao. Yeah. The Brazilian film by Cleba Mendoza Filho and Juliano Dernels, which uh, I also have been practicing. I have a, a colleague by the name of Nico who is from Argentina, which is not Brazil, but he offered to give me a uh, pronunciation guide, which I thank you very much for, Nico. I appreciate that. Oh, thanks, Nico. Uh, yeah, and this is uh, this is a Brazilian film, one that appeared very highly on a number of top 10 lists, um, as well as the film critic-in-chief from the previous administration, one uh, Bar- Barack Hussein Obama. I'm trying to pronounce his name correctly as well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which was which uh, made it all the more appealing. I have to say, Matt, if Donald Trump came out with a best films of 2020 list, would you consult with it? Would you consider it? Would you look at it? Would you uh, uh, take his opinion into account? Uh, no, no, uh, not in the slightest. <laughs> no, why would I? I yeah. What was his favorite movie? Uh, that he I think I think he said uh, not all quiet. Gone with the wind. Gone was with that, the wind. Was that, because was that that's it? the last time he's watched a film. That's yeah. Um, I think it's the only movie he's watched. Apparently, I mean, he also he just can't choose a Bible verse because they're all his favorite and it's personal, or they're <laughs> all his favorite. I don't know which one that is, but um, yeah, no. Uh, when when Barack Obama says that he enjoys a film, I tend to listen. I I think he he's got good taste. Um, uh, as far as that is concerned. And I feel um, like he would convincingly talk to me about it, even if he hadn't seen it. Like, I would believe what he said to say right, about right, it. Right, 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 um, right. As opposed to Donald Trump, who sounds like he's a uh, a fifth grader who hasn't done his homework, uh, you know, and just padding out time <laughs> with every speech he says. Yes. Um, Much like his lawyers. <laughs> oh, my God. Have you? Okay. No. We're going we're gonna to side note this episode a little bit no. on this one. But have you, I, I have been watching the impeachment trial uh, as a second monitor this week. Have you been? Going? I have not. Uh, it is horrifying. It is, it's just, it's the video that they show of, um, of basically the, the uh, insurrection alongside the speech is horrific. And it is like, wow, we lived for four years under this monster. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. I, uh, it's been an interesting week uh, having to basically relive uh, history that is only a few months old. Yeah, I'm choosing not to do that. I, my other job is literally reliving history of other times, and I think I'll just stay there for a little bit, uh, <laughs> just for a while. Well, uh, with that in mind, with the context of what people's words mean, I want to dive into some emails. Thank you, everyone who's been emailing us in at OnlyMoviePodcast at gmail.com or hitting us up on Twitter at OnlyMoviePod. And uh, you can too. And you can too. Uh, we have been holding a few of these emails just because we've had a lot of guests recently and we didn't want to um, take up too much time away from our uh, more intelligent list, um, more intelligent uh, hosts. Um, but, uh, this Wait, week, no, no, the guests are the intelligent ones followed by our listeners, followed by us. If we're going in, oh, order in hierarchical, of intelligence. hierarchical order, we are the bottom <laughs> of the totem pole and yes. listeners, if you are getting this episode, you are just know that this is the worst of us. <laughs> this, is, what, this specific one well in the hierarchy yeah this is oh the worst. yes well no but we're gonna no it's not because we're gonna read their emails so that it knocks it up a peg oh yeah they're they're gonna help us out but i'm just saying if it's just the two of us it's the worst mm-hmm. um but this was an email in uh, a lot of emails that came in about uh tenant 
Uh, first coming in from Jacob, which I, uh, again, this is just a sort of a nice tie in in terms of the context of how a person talks. But a couple of weeks ago, we did the episode Tenant, uh, where we discussed uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, writings about uh, watching movies during the pandemic. Uh, and Jacob uh, had a great email to send us uh, about his thoughts on this, uh, which I just want to read here. Uh, the discussion you and Matt had about Christopher Nolan's words surrounding the importance of movies was very interesting to me. I'd like to write my thoughts out in the hopes of elucidating them, and I'd like to read them in the hope of elucidating our listeners. Permission granted. Thank you, sir. <laughs> to understand what someone means by their words, one approach is to study those words and take them in good faith that they mean what they expected to mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, let's call that the Barack Obama approach. Sure. Another approach is to focus on the expected effect of their words. This speaker has spoken in a coded manner before, and I suspect that their intent generally goes beyond what they say. The context in which those words appear might be a clue, uh, might also clue me in on some intention as well and needs to be considered. Or perhaps if the speaker did not consider the context, it would be deemed irresponsible. Let's call that the Trumpian way. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a name for it? Oh, wait. Yeah, of course there is. I didn't realize how beautiful of a segue you were doing here. Kudos. <laughs> I was really working this one. Yeah. Uh, with Nolan's comments, I give most uh, most folks the benefit of the doubt that they mean what they say until they've shown me that they don't deserve it. I thought Nolan wrote a heartfelt message about the importance of the industry he works in and his love of the space that it creates. Could he have realized that this message at the time would spur an inflammatory response that would be summed up as Nolan says, go to the theaters. Sure Hashtag he, die for tenant. <laughs> sure he could have. But I really don't want to say that he should have. I think just as much as Nolan could have anticipated how his words may have been taken, we all have an onus to take a look at the society we have built where someone can't write honestly about what they are feeling without triple checking their own messages so it isn't torn apart in the news cycle and then picked up by masses who will judge them often harshly without bothering to read your original sub 700 word piece of writing. Uh, I thank you, Jacob, for that. I thought that was just a lovely yeah, encapsulation, encapsulation of how to read the Nolan, uh, the Nolan controversy. Uh, we you can go back to that episode on Tenant and listen to it. Um, we had thoughts. I think we've actually talked about this controversy several times on the podcast oh, yes. now uh, in this past year. Uh, and I'm, by past year, I mean uh, you know the last ten years of 2020. Yes. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I agree with everything sort of that was stated uh, with with maybe the uh, the slight um, sort of caveat of uh, Nolan uh, sh- didn't like we shouldn't have to expect people to always anticipate the words when it gets put into a news cycle and 700 things. Uh, I mean, I uh, again, uh, <laughs> I am uh, uh, below an ant to Christopher Nolan's boot in the terms of influence, of course. But like when you when you do talk to a large amount of people, like I'm referencing extra credit stuff, like we are always hyper careful to try to not be taken out of context. And we floundered a few times, sure. Yeah. Um, but it, I, my point, I guess, is when you get a certain level of, uh, of people listening to you or people engaging with your content, you do and should consider those things because they are important. And And it does suck, believe me. It sucks to have to like really think about like over and over and over again and kind of overanalyze all the ways that you're your message could be misconstrued. Um, but it also kind of is the responsible thing to do, at least in my opinion. I try to. Again, I have failed uh, multiple times, but it's not something that, you know. So, like, when you're, at a, when you're at a Christopher Nolan level, and even, you know what, even at Christopher Nolan's level, that should be why publicists and people sort of, like, that you hire sort of could also chime in and be like, actually, maybe this or that and the other thing. I don't know. Um, I, 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 I agree with the sentiment. I would also say that, um, public speaking and speaking out in those forums is not Christopher Nolan's content. That's not what he does. You know, he makes movies. Um, so, sure, but he, but he, did, but he did make this content. He of course, did make of course. But I'm messages. saying he doesn't yeah. do that on the on the regular, right? Like he doesn't yeah. he doesn't write op eds for the Washington Post uh, sure. regularly. So it's not kind of what he does. But you uh, should know you should know the power he has as a public figure. I'm sure he I'm sure he's aware of it, and maybe. But again, because it's not something he does often, he maybe he wasn't uh, aware of how much we. Uh, as a listening audience, would spin every single syllable of, of his work out of control. Maybe he should have known because of the fact that we spin every single frame of his films uh, into something, into into hidden meaning. So maybe that's it. But no, I, I don't think, uh, like Jacob said, I don't think he should have to no, uh, triple enough. check everything he says. Uh, because again, it's not what he does. Yeah, but again, he's a public figure and 
I think that there's some responsibility that comes with that. But we've talked about this a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, we can agree to disagree. Jacob, thank you for the email. I did like the really good breakdown, the Barack Obama approach, as you hear put, and the <laughs> Donald Trump approach, because it is so true. It's it's exactly what we're uh, experiencing right now. Uh, don't watch the impeachment trials. Uh, Jacob also decided to write us in about Tenant uh, in a separate email, which I thought was uh, uh, worth reading as well. Uh, uh, do you want to take this one, Matt? Sure, I was taking a swig of beer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put it down. And <laughs> I realized do it was just gonna be my voice for so long, and I was like, "Who wants to listen to that?" Everybody does <laughs> that smooth, sultry, sultry tone. Okay, uh, uh, the email continues. I was not excited to watch Tenant a second time either, but I felt like I should. When I watch a film a second time, I tend to like it more. I think this is because I can appreciate it more for what it is without expectation. If a film is a mess on second viewing, I can take it on the terms of being a mess. And that's I, I, side note, Matt commentary. I like that. That's what I like to do. It's fun. Back to the email. After my second watching, I decided that Tenant isn't a great film in the traditional <laughs> sense. I do, however, think it's a pretty fun puzzle with perhaps some uh, interesting thematic elements. During my second viewing, I allowed myself to use subtitles and liberally pausing to really think about what was going on. And it was fun. Uh, for a movie that was apparently all about the movie-going experience, I found it working more like an interactive video game slash intellectual exercise where the gameplay is you trying to understand the <laughs> mechanics of the world, period. I love that. That's your, that's your reading? It's a, it's a video game now? I love it so much. Well, not that it's a video game, but that, I, that, that but Jacob decided to experience it in more of a... It, it, it's funny. It worked for Jacob in the exact way Christopher Nolan would have hated oh really i think it would have worked exactly like he would have wanted well it, it worked i think I in think, that um, he would have you know wants you to repeat view it oh yes 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 but i think uh destroying this like it commenting that it is far more enjoyable to a person watching it in a non-theatrical way granted right oh after okay already watching yeah, 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 it in a theatrical way yeah if you could watch um, it three times in a movie theater that would be what christopher nolan probably wants right yeah. um Anyway, uh, again, here I go putting words in a man's mouth who I've never met. Um, but no, I like this. I like this read quite a bit. I think it's super fun. Um, uh, if I if I can find the time at some point, I might try to do this. I think subtitles would help a ton. <laughs> um, yeah, I I'm not eager to revisit the film, but again, you can listen to our episode on it, which I think covers. Uh, my feelings about it. And and that was a second time around for me watching that movie. Steven writes in, uh, I agree. <laughs> the idea of watching Tenet a second time fills me with dread. Unlike <laughs> A Promising Young Woman, which I sat down immediately after, after watching it with my wife to enjoy again. First time because of the misleading trailer. I hadn't thought she would like it, but gosh, it was a good, it was so good. And she did. Uh, he jumps back over to Tenet the time mechanic in Tenet doesn't work. In fact, it is so broken, I get more satisfaction proving just how badly it broken it is than I got from the whole movie. Come at me. Wow. Um, I like it. Yeah, this is a, this, this is a, this was a positive review of a, pro, a promising young woman, which we also reviewed a couple of weeks ago, uh, and a negative review of Tenet, which we reviewed uh, a few weeks ago. Basically, the, the point here is, listen to We the review movies. Yeah. People agree with us. It's kind of nice. Uh, and one final email in response to uh, the conversation I had with my son about movie titles, or rather my son and my wife uh, about uh, the importance of movie titles, uh, which I actually did a little bit of research on. But do you want to read this email from your good friend, Ross? I do, Ross, buddy. So nice to hear from you again. Old college friend Ross writes, uh, loved soul and tenant sure looked cool, but that's not why I'm here, he writes. I can get right to the point unlike some podcasters I know, just kidding, the off-topic banter between you two is half the reason I tune in. Well, good, because it's about half the Yeah, because you're going to get that a lot this episode. Uh, <laughs> in regards to your conversation about movie titles with no meaning, uh, the closest I could think of was Apocalypse Now. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and even that's pretty subjective. It's just a weird phrase with a loose interpretation of war, I suppose. But the literal apocalypse certainly never happens, nor do I think any direct meaning is applied in dialogue. It's been a while, though. Magnolia is another one that crossed my mind, but I believe it's referring to the name of a popular street in the Valley of L.A. around which a lot of the action takes place. So it's a loose association as well. Reservoir Dogs is another one that's hard to ascribe meaning to without the context of the film, although there are multiple origin stories floating around out there about this one on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, those are good. Those are good. Those, those are, are good ones. stabs, I, the, Ross. I, 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 they all are correct on your terms. Yeah, yeah. And, and just uh, as a reminder, uh, the conversation was 
We were looking for movie titles that didn't directly relate to anything that was in the movie. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I think what, what Ross has done is provided context for how movie titles work, yes. which is that by association, even an irrelevant movie or an unrelated title suddenly gains meaning because of the film itself. So the film like Reservoir Dogs, I don't know what the phrase Reservoir Dogs means per se or what its origin is. It's certainly not uttered in the film. But because of the context of it being a film about these group of people, I presume that metaphorically these people are Reservoir Dogs who perhaps attack each other, which is what happens in that movie. Um, in the case of Apocalypse Now, I actually, be prompted by this email, um, I went and did a little bit of reading because, of course, Apocalypse Now is based upon the Joseph Conrad book, uh, Heart of Darkness. Yep. Um, and, uh, and you know, was translated into uh, from uh, the Congo into Vietnam. And uh, the screenwriter, John Milius, uh, of course, the great director of uh, Conan the Barbarian, um, wrote that or there was some writing that the that the uh, the title Apocalypse Now came from sort of an inversion of a popular peace uh, pin that would be worn during the 60s called uh, which read Nirvana Now. Uh, mm. So people looking for peace now and Apocalypse Now is the inverse of that, which is what Vietnam represents in there, the Apocalypse Now. So the Apocalypse in this case is the Vietnam War itself in my reading of it. But I, as I mentioned, um, it's open to interpretation because it's not a literal title. It's a metaphorical title within that context. Uh, Magnolia is an interesting one because in that film, although again, uh, sort of not a literal t uh, title, they do actually all the characters at some point drive down Magnolia, which is a street in Los Angeles, and they all cross paths uh, on Magnolia. Um, but it's not literally explained in the sure. film. Uh, it's sort of just a metaphorical. I got one. Sure. Street Fighter. Street Fighter is about a road in Thailand where um, people were banging against it potentially. And there and are no street <laughs> fights in Street Fighter. In fact, actually, I don't know if it's actually titled Street Fighter, the movie. Yeah. And if it is, then it is a movie. So maybe my my thing doesn't hold water. No, no, this is uh, on the Internet. I think it's uh, again. Uh, uh, how did this get made? There is a, a funny I believe they sell merch on this fact, which was uh, I think June Diane Raphael made that point. She was like, are there street fighters in Street Fighter? Uh, are there any street fights in this movie? And I think you're right. There are no street fighting in the movie, but there is in the game. The, right? not, well, not really either, to be perfectly honest. I mean, you, you do fight in a street in the game in one of the stages, just like I think probably Jean-Claude Van Damme punches someone outside a building where a car is on. So technically <laughs> that could be a street. Yeah. Um. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say it's a win for me, though. Yeah, street you, Fighter you take doesn't that. tell you nothing about what's happening in the film. Take it all the way to the bank, baby. Uh, thank you again, everyone who wrote us in. Uh, you can do so at uh, onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod with do your it. unrelated uh, movie titles or whatever it is you're watching that you want to talk to us about. Uh, Matt, one last thing before we get to this week's episode. Uh, I just want to talk about our schedule uh, a little bit uh, of oh, movies. I, I I that, thought you might want to talk about how you're recording in a different room and you have smart lighting going behind you. Oh, man, that is so cool. By the way, yes, uh, Philips Hue light bulbs. Uh, this episode is not sponsored by Philips Hue, <laughs> uh, although we'd like to be because I'd love to get some more of these, are just wonderful. Um, they are completely unnecessary. <laughs> totally unnecessary. And I would I would consider them a midlife crisis kind of purchase, mm -hmm. but I love them. Uh, basically, they're these Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs, which you can control with your phone and and uh, change lighting for you can say siri turn on the light bulb and one of the most fun things that we do at my house since we no longer go to discos by choice not because of covid um to the <laughs> discotheca uh we you can connect the light bulbs to your spotify account and they will pulse and change color according to the music that you are listening to uh i believe they'll even change color according to your voice so i could have actually connected that uh, while we were doing the podcast and you would have had this really annoying change of lighting happening as I bad. was talking. Yeah. I actually used them this weekend for a tabletop role playing game to change moods of the of the Whoa. bases and the and the models that we were playing our battles on, but it like changed when they were in an acid room, I turned it green and when they were in a demon fight, I sort of turned it like a dark red. It was very, very fun. Anyway, we just spent way too much time <laughs> plugging shit that's not paying us to I know. Uh Sorry, you were talking about the schedule, something important before I derailed us. Uh, I just wanted to say we do, for the first time in a little while, have a schedule of films that we're going to be doing 
Uh, and it, as often as the case, this you would have noticed by this time of the year, we would have typically done our best of 2020 uh, list mm -hmm. of films, our top tens of 2020. Uh, typically, that would have actually collided with the Oscars, which has obviously been pushed as well. Um, but we are holding that back ever so slightly. And by slightly, I mean a month um, because well, like three months, really. Yeah, a little while. Um, because there are uh, at least two movies that have appeared on a number of top 10 lists uh, for 2020 that we have not been able to see yet. And if you are an ordinary listener, uh, ordinary moviegoer like us, uh, you probably haven't been able to see them yet either. And that is Nomadland and Minari, uh, which um, is, uh, there is a sort of unusual circumstance about those films, which is that they were technically released in theaters in 2020 to a limited release, which makes them eligible for the Oscars. Uh, but they are actually being released uh, on VOD right now, which is typically what would have happened if this wasn't a COVID year. But unfortunately, what it meant is that most people didn't go see those movies in their, in their limited run releases. Right. Um, and uh, I felt, you know, th these are two movies that are likely to enter the conversation as the Oscars come, uh, come around. Uh, Minari has already had an interesting um, debacle not debacle, but an interesting run at the Golden Globes because I call it a debacle. Yeah, it's call its it a, fault. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, you know to 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 put it in the most polite term, shit is fucked up, yo. Because they uh, are counting Minari as a foreign language film, despite the fact that it is an, it is an American film about an American family uh, that happened to be Korean and speak a majority there uh, speak a majority in Korean, and therefore. Uh, gets lumped into a different category of films other than the best picture category. Now, there's lots to talk about in terms of why that happened and how that is. Uh, I would just say that there is some underlying, <clears throat> let's just call it racism under there um, for, for, for that decision. Well, I mean, Shahir, I don't think we can call them racist. I mean, it's not like they did that with Inglorious Bastards. No, didn't do that with Inglorious Bastards. Oh, wait a minute. They didn't do that with Inglorious Bastards. That's so strange. Interesting about that. Well, huh. there, there are arguments to be made, and I'm sure there's a rational argument to be made, but it is unfortunate because this is... Uh, and this reminds me of um, the, the way in which uh, film borders work. You know, I remember, uh, I think I told the story on the podcast of going into a video store in New Zealand and finding a New Zealand film in the foreign film section, uh, a film that had been filmed uh, not too far from where this video store was, uh, was in the foreign film section because it featured an, uh, a person of color who happened to look like me. Um, and that was deemed to be a foreign film in its own country. Oh, boy. <laughs> it happens. We understand. Uh, Minari for the win. Um, we, but again, as again, it might, you know, what might be the oddest case, uh, you know, like it is entirely possible that neither of those films end up on our top 10 list. I mean, sure, but we're, <laughs> you, we, you, it's important that we get them done. Uh, you are very passionate about them. I do want to see them. Uh, and we'll get it done. We'll get them all out. So what's coming out? What's the, what's the order here? We're doing Minari first. Minari then... first, because there's a special screening. Uh, A24 has virtual screenings of Minari running over the next week. But if you do get this podcast in time, uh, check A24's website to see if there are any tickets available to those special virtual screenings of Minari. And then after that, uh, Nomadland will be released on Hulu, I believe on February 19th. Uh, you can double check the dates on that. Uh, but that is the new Chloe Zhao film. Uh, you'll be, uh, uh, are you, uh, uh, do you know about Chloe Zhao or what she's working on? Next? Not off the top. No. Uh, the Eternals. She's doing the Eternals. Thing. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. I, I fell off the Eternals bandwagon. I like, it, it kind of like fell in a weird sort of press junket for me. Uh, I have like, no idea what the Eternals is. I just know it's a Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's hopefully <laughs> going to do for the Guardians of the Galaxy what do for the Eternals what Guardians did for the Guardians. Like I, before Guardians of the Galaxy, I didn't give a shit about those characters. Like right. and now, of course, I do. Well, so. I'm very excited for that. Chloe Zhao is going to be taking that. She is uh, probably the uh, the new voice of American cinema for the next at least few years. Nice. Um, so I'm excited for that. Right. But well, did we get did we get all the business in front done so we can have a party in the back? I feel like we need a break. To be honest with you, we had so much business. I feel like we should like take a break. Can we come back at like five? No, no, we can't. All we right. have things to do. All right, like work and work more, and then sleeps a little bit, and then wake up in a cold sweat, wondering what happened to your life, and then go back to work. I feel like this is a Talking Heads song. Uh, where is my beautiful wife? Where is my beautiful house? And the, the days, days go, go by. by. Gotta record the podcast. Um, <laughs> no, you want me to say the movie description? Yeah, sure. For, why not? For Baccarat? Seems like a good thing. All right. IMDb describes this film as 
After the death of her grandmother, Teresa comes home to her matriarchal village in a near-future Brazil to find a succession of sinister events that mobilize all of its residents. Uh, accurate. Very I like accurate. It. Very I accurate. like it. Um, I feel like that's that's your number one barometer right now is accuracy, right? Not, I mean, po- not these, poetry, just accuracy. Well, the poetry can be accurate. It can also be like uh, like... As long as it's not actively misleading or just doesn't say something that's in the film, you could make it as flowery as you'd like to. Uh, <laughs> let me, I just let don't me want spoilers and I don't want lies. <laughs> I think we've only encountered one one outright lie so far, and that was in the. <laughs> I think there's been a few in the IMDb description of Soul. I think was an outright oh, that's lie. Right, that's right. It's like they didn't watch it. Um, um, did you know anything about this? Because it's funny, I gave you a list of films mm-hmm. and this was one that you, you jumped on right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the trailer for this a while ago and I was like, yes, 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 yes. It just looked like something that I would really, really be down for. And actually, oddly enough, and I didn't realize this until I did a little bit of digging. I think there's a reason why even in the trailer, I was like, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, fuck yeah. This movie has like heavy John Carpenter like um uh, vibes and pulls and like the people who made it are fans of John Carpenter. John Carpenter's kind of all over this thing in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some style stuff they take. The drone is called Chris 1982, which is a thing reference. They use one of his tracks from the Forgotten Tracks thing. They use that it's called Night. It's during one of the dance sequences. Okay. In this thing, and the name of the school, and I can't, I'm gonna butcher this, but it's like uh, J O A with the accent over it. Oh, Carpentero, like. Mm. She, Yona Carpentero is the name of the school. Okay. Because the um the the director um Medoncia Filo uh yeah. is a fan of Carpenter's work and like tried to get a lot of the stuff in there. So like they named the school after him in this <laughs> movie. Like the influences, the references are great, but the influences are also there too. So like I think I think I saw something in that trailer that I didn't quite know that was sort of in my wheelhouse. Okay. Um, so it was just an interesting sort of like after the fact find. But oh, yeah, I, yeah, I had seen it and I was psyched to see it. And then, you know, the world fell apart and I kind of forgot about it. So when you threw the name out, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like, do want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was a nice surprise. Uh, it was a nice surprise to to, to remember how, how psyched I was for it. So tell me, uh, with all that uh, that hype that you had been feeling, uh, how you felt about it once you got to watch it? Well, um, not as oh, hyped, oh. I guess. Wow. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, I think it they, they learned some of the best and worst things from John Carpenter. Okay. <laughs> Um, namely, uh, this is a movie that, uh, okay. It does something that I really hate in films, but then does other things so well that like it knocks me back to an even point. And the thing I hate is I felt like, um, this movie isn't really about characters. It's about a place Mm -hmm. like characters are there and you learn names and, and, and whatever, but like there, I don't know. I didn't ever connect with a single one of them. In a way, and for me, I I I'm a character-driven person when it comes to to cinema. So like, I really wanted to. There was some like I wish we did, but the way that time was used in this movie, um, not like tenant use, but like the way they actually used the runtime of the film to give us information, uh, was a little more. Um, again, going back to John Carpenter, uh, slow as hell, uh, and which is fine, but it, 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 that slowness didn't leave me to have more time with the character or sort of learn anything. It was just like sort of getting more of the mood or sort of what the movie was trying to say outside of like individuals across. Mm-hmm. Again, that's totally fine. It's just something that very uh, doesn't uh, sort of connect with me as easily. But then in the second half, when it starts sort of picking up, um, and I started to kind of understand the metaphor again and we'll talk about this soon but like this is a hard movie to get through in my particular blind spots of the world mm-hmm. because i'm not getting the metaphor because i don't understand the politics of brazil mm-hmm. um and after watching it and then reading it there was a lot of oh like moments for me so i didn't have a lot to latch onto in the beginning i was quite confused to be honest and then eventually i kind of came around and got it and it became sort of like, I think it might have been in your notes, but you described it sort of as a, well, you, you talked about it next to The Hunt. Right. Uh, um, I'm, and, and you're reading my notes. <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 well, the emails were in the notes. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, so <laughs> um, 
So overall, there was some some good, some bad. I thought the movie was beautiful looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the the camera work and the and the color and the cinematography was wonderful. The editing was like purposely jarring, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. I think. Um, and 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 when I wanted a slice of life moment, when it spent like you know ten minutes on a thing, like it was very beautiful to look at, but it also lulled you a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pacing never felt like it kept me connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it, it's a complicated movie that I liked a lot of parts of and didn't like a lot of parts of. Uh, and so it kind of like evened out for me. I I will say that I enjoyed the experience of watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I would call this, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I would fully agree with, uh, with president Obama in calling it one of the best films of, of that year that which it came out of the 2020, but uh, what about you, Shahir? What, uh, how'd you feel? It's funny because I think, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, you made the comment that we often seem like we we disagree uh, about uh, a lot of material. But in fact, we, we tend to agree more often than not, but come at it from the opposite direction, um, yes. which I, I think is going to be true of what we're about, my feelings on the film. Uh, itself and I, I, what was great about watching this film is it actually made me pause and think critically. I remember when I used to write reviews, um, uh, I would have to. What one of my big things was ensure that you have an argument to make uh, that is not simply whether a film is good or bad, but 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 mm-hmm. an argument to make about how the film made you feel and your response to it that is contextual. Yeah, and and. I so this is going to be a long detour back to where I want to get to, but it what watching this film really <laughs> made up. me think about what is film criticism? <laughs> and oh uh, fuck, we're going there. We're going all the way back. All um, right, everybody. I hope you have snacks. Your blood sugar is going to drop. <laughs> uh, buckle up. No, um, because I I was starting to think of a framework of how to view this film, um, and my response to it. Um, to, to, to do the TLDR on this, I did really enjoy this film and I did think it was, it's, it's very, 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 very well put together and very smart. Um, the comparison to the hunt is, um, uh, is a hundred percent apt. Um, uh, we talked about the hunt and it's, uh, a, and, and in a way the hunts, uh, either misuse of political allegory or it's unsubtle use of political allegory in every way that the hunt kind of, um, Attempts to uh, subvert uh, a political ideology by by you know through the lens of satire, um, Baccarat tins, it does that very very smartly um, and is rich and detailed and nuanced in all the ways that the Hunt is not. Um, that said, there have been two times in my life where this has happened to me, and I and I tried to think about like and tried to contextualize this, which is that. I think film criticism is really about the process of of being able to respond to um, something you've watched using both your interpretive skills, which has been honed through watching a lot of movies and reading a lot of text, not necessarily about film, but about, you know, how to read text in any sort of medium, how to read music, how to read uh, photography, how to read um, literature. Uh, and, and in many cases with films, it's often about how to read other films. Like, how do we, um, you know, understand the cinema of um, of Spain, for example, versus how we understand the cinema of Japan. Um, and there have been two times in my life where I have felt that I don't have the vocabulary to fully explain why I think a film works well or not. And I, uh, to, to again, to do the TLDR for, for the later part of this you conversation. You can't do two of them. Sure we can. Uh, it's 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 my podcast. What the fuck? Um, <laughs> the second part of the TLDR of this is that I did went, I did after the fact go and read as much as I could today um, uh, about uh, Brazil's political history to kind of help me contextualize what was happening in this film. That said, I think um, uh, uh, Mendonça, uh, who saw Baccarat around the same time as when he saw Parasite, said this about Parasite. When I saw Parasite, it was like Bong Joon-ho was talking the same language as me. In fact, I felt like Bakuru and Parasite are cousins. Um, and he's referring, of course, to that uh, that famous phrase that uh, Bong Joon-ho said about Parasite, which is that we all live in the same country. It's called capitalism. And many of the uh, political ideology or the, the sort of ideological points of view 
uh, of Baccarat, which you know you could say there's a complicated history of Brazilian politics involved here, but you can all you can still sum it straight down to capitalism is the world we all live in and its problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been only two instances where I can think of, you know, that come to mind where I haven't had the vocabulary to fully explain how a film works. And one was uh, Oliver Say's film Demon Lover, which is also a film about capitalism. Uh, it's really it's a it's a French film about a um, a lover uh, of demons. Yeah, lover. Well, <laughs> uh, a corporate takeover of a hentai company, I believe, um, that that goes horribly wrong and manifests itself in weird metaphysical ways. Um, Whoa. Okay. It's it's it's. So my point is, that's a movie I saw in a theater and I was like, I don't quite have the vocabulary to explain whether this, like my response. I mean, don't sell yourself short. You watch enough hentai. I think you get (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I do. Yeah. Um, Tentacle (laughs) 4. I actually, I, I, okay. Full disclosure. I haven't watched a lot of hentai. I don't know a lot about hentai, but there is, there's a film I remember renting called Urutsuko Doji, I think. Uh, which I just spent a lot of time trying to remember the title, which I realized was hentai as I was watching it. It's not like hentai, <laughs> hentai. hentai. Yeah, yeah, it's not actual, actual, you know, but it was like, I was, I rented it from a video store and I was like, oh, okay, a lot of tentacles. Anyway, all of us say is Demon Lover. Go see it, it's a good movie. I think Criterion's doing a re-release of it. Uh, okay, next year. so Demon Lover was the first one and this is the second? This is honestly the second time I can remember that that has happened where I felt like I enjoyed what was happening in this film and and I certainly came around to what the film was doing, but I oftentimes felt out of my depth in terms of understanding the political context and even the stylistic context, which made this make sense to make me understand it. And I think, but that was actually really great because the next day I, I, I fired up the film again, it's available on the Criterion channel. So if you have the Criterion channel, you can kind of watch it again. And I rewatched certain scenes just to kind of give myself uh, a little bit more of a grounding to it. And I did find myself sort of like Jacob said in uh, in the early, you know, email clicking into the film once I had viewed it for a first time and I sure. understood what it was trying to do. Um, and, you know, I, like, like you mentioned earlier, that, that sort of comparison to the hunt is absolutely apt. Um, I don't, you know, we, I guess we can kind of say we're in spoiler territory now. If you haven't watched so. the film, uh, ostensibly the village of Baccarat is under siege by a group of, um, I guess what you would call the most dangerous game style terrorism. Americans. Yeah. Americans and Germans. Uh, well, they're all American. They're, they That's are. The thing. Yes, yeah. Uduker is American. He's more American than most Americans. Um, yeah. By the way, I remember seeing Uduker uh, when I lived in the Upper East Side. I remember seeing him wandering around there often. He's, oh, that's funny. I remember seeing him in Blade. Yeah, he's in Blade. He's in a lot of Las <laughs> Trier films. Uh, he's great. Uh, you know, just iconic uh, face for uh, yep. for cinema. I absolutely uh, adore it whenever he pops up in a film. Um, but the you know the allegory is obviously a, a small village is under siege by uh, a sort of death tourism where people come to kill uh, for sport uh, the, the, the locals. Um, and in all the ways that that didn't quite, was too on the nose in the hunt, it was more politically volatile in this because of the implication, I guess, that this was not just uh, a sort of clever idea, but a manifestation of the underlying political system at play in Brazil, which again, I didn't know a lot of, a lot about, but, but, you know, it's, we, we can all understand that capitalism works in a certain way to, um, to uh, embolden those who are opportunistic and to disenfranchise those who are um, powerless. And so that all rings true. It's just, I think the thing that you're talking about is the way in which the film gets to that point, uh, which is that, there's a satirical element to this, which is not quite funny. And there's mm-hmm. an unraveling of this, of the way the story unfolds, which is odd because you start with this kind of like reintroduction of, uh, of a young woman coming back to Baccarat to seeing her town, to kind of being there as Carmelita has passed away. And then this sort of like odd happenings that almost have nothing to do with, with that story but have a bigger, broader context. You know, like the, right. the, the horses from the next farming community are kind of um, The running. flying saucer. Yeah, a flying saucer appears and you're like, well, that is a cheap looking flying saucer, but for good effect because it's meant to be cheap uh, as we later learn. Um, and, and then an introduction of the characters who are actually perpetrating these crimes. And, and then 
I think the thing where the hunt kind of didn't quite work or the hunt was a little too unsubtle, um, this is equally as unsubtle but somewhat rich because we get to know these characters from the inside. The characters are actually there to do the hunt and they have these sort of like uh, unusual nuances to them which which are kind of rich and and detailed and weird particularly the scene that i rewatched was the sort of dinner table or lunch table scene with udi Kier and the and the rest of the, the his merry band of murderers uh realizing that two amongst them are brazilian but not brazilians like the ones they're about to kill and they sort of have this internal uh feud about it i found that that scene was pretty powerful the second time around because it was sort of like seeing the dynamic of of what it takes to be a hunter of other people so yeah. look, I apologize that it was a sort of like a long rambling about how I got to where I am with this film, but I enjoyed it. I think it is a film that is mechanically complicated. Um, and in my opinion, takes more than one viewing to kind of fully appreciate it and not in the sort of dread, the, the kind of way that I have dread with Tenant. But, right. but, but it is one that I think is rich and full of meaning. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. I just didn't click with anything, to be perfectly honest, until right. around the second half, until like maybe. Oh, well, actually, I'm trying to remember when that that dinner scene took place, because that was the first time I was lunchtime like, oh, scene. yeah, 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 a yeah. lunchtime scene. That was the first time where I was like, ah, aha, uh-huh. yeah, I get it. And I like what you're doing, movie. And then it kind of went back and forth with being slow, fast, slow, fast. And again, not that slow is bad, but I, I and I don't know if it was. um. I don't even think it's a a language barrier thing, or I don't think it's a, a thing. I just I had a really hard time grasping onto caring a lot before the midpoint. Yeah. Um. Even the character moments that you describe with the with the villains in the movie, I don't. It doesn't help me. Like, there's interesting bits, but like, it doesn't help me like see what kind of character they are. Like, it's like the the other one I was thinking of was. When uh, there's a point when one of the killers kills a kid. Yeah. Which I found just horrific. Yeah. It was like difficult. And then another one starts freaking out about like you killed the kid. And the guy's like, oh, maybe he was like 16 or had a gun. And like that guy freaks out. And then later on, there's another scene where that guy talks about like loading up his car and like going to maybe kill his ex-girlfriend. And then he couldn't. Then he went to malls and like decided he couldn't do it. And like, oh, thank God he can kill people now to get this like urge out of him. Yeah. And while it didn't do anything to none of those things made me feel like I knew these people anymore. Um, it did do something interesting that I don't think gets called out enough when describing monstrous people. And that is that no one really thinks that they're a monster. And they also, a lot of times, villainous people or characters also feel righteous in their indignation. So, like, and and oftentimes, and you could even look, honestly, even the 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 um, invasion of the state capital, mm-hmm. right? Like, those people are all there at this as this mob as sort of one thing. But all of those people, I guarantee you, have different and not not fully. Um, jonesing with each other belief structures Mm. about like what is good and evil yeah and i don't think we see that a lot in films a lot of times like especially like in the hunt uh they're (laughs) all kind of like the same like we're on we're on team bad like you know what i mean and this is like this movie showed look at all of these different bad people that definitely don't agree with one another on a lot of different moral stances but they're all still bad. <laughs> like, and, and so that made it a bit more of a rich tapestry for me in that sense of like, uh, oftentimes when you see a group of terrible, bad, villainous people or characters, it is scary because you believe that they are all of one mind. And that's a scary thing that, that I find very disconcerting where it, like a cartoon villain, right? Like, or like the bad guys in, in any sort of thing for kids where it's like, oh, there's just these soldiers and they believe like Cobra, Hydra or whatever other serpentine villainous organization we want to talk about. <laughs> but like, but it is weirdly like more truthful, interesting, and in a weird way, comforting to know that like, that's not the case. Like people and characters have many different iterations of their particular either wonderfulness or vileness. And I, that, that, this was something I really enjoyed uh, seeing in this movie. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, 
it felt like every character that was perpetrating the hunt had a backstory that had been worked out. And, right. you know, like it, there, the, I was uh, reading Pauline Kael's essay uh, in a anticipation for uh, Citizen Kane, where she said there's this sort of fun exercise that you should do as a film student or as, a, as someone reading film, which is like imagining the life of a character when they're not on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she describes the fact that in Citizen Kane, it doesn't feel like many of the characters have lives uh, uh, <laughs> when they're not on screen. Right. Uh, but but in this one, like I was thinking about the, the Julia character, who's the woman who has the Tommy gun. Um, And then has sex after she kills um, two people driving on the road. You know, like you can you can really see because like as as we meet her for the first time, she's kind of delivering a monologue. We're not sure exactly to whom or to what it feels like it might be to a video camera or something uh, about why she has the Tommy gun. And she talks about how she used to babysit for someone and, you know, they had this gun and she was fascinated by it until she got it from the person. And we realize that that she has a fetishization of violence that comes from a very young age. And the, you know, the, the reason that she decides she wants to have sex immediately after killing someone is kind of plays into that whole, um, that whole feeling that she has about it. And then, um, you know, another character who wants, is very gung ho about killing two, um, two elderly people when it comes to the point where they actually end up, you know, killing, uh, her partner and uh, and 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 maiming her, you know, she's suddenly pleading for her life, uh, and they ask her, "Why are you doing this?" She says, "I don't know, but please help me." And she, you suddenly realize that the the disconnect that she has about the violence she's willing to inflict on other people versus the violence she's willing to be inflicted upon is so there's such a discrepancy between the two that like her entire ideology of life kind of falls apart in front of you, and and it's mm-hmm. meant to, um, yeah. and I think there's. You know, there's kind of rich, there's a richness to this whole world that isn't there in, yeah, again, I don't want this entire episode to be us ragging, you know, comparing this to The Hunt because it's, it's, it's a much, it's a, it's a very, very different film, but it is playing with the same tropes and doing it in, for, for a very different effect and, and has a very different purpose to it because I think there is something at the end of this film, which is kind of celebratory about this village or this small township coming oh. together and and sort of capturing their using their history which is that you know literally they have a um is the a, best part yeah a museum of their own town which stores a lot of the guns that were used uh in a pre-revolutionary day like it looks like their town has been through sort of revolutions before yeah and, this was not their first rodeo yeah, well, and and I don't think that these characters have been through it before, but it's in their blood. It's well, in I their town. I think it's a little bit of both. The, the interesting thing about this movie is the town shows you a lot of different aged people, yeah. everything from children to like very elderly folks. Yeah. And I think I would posit that a few of the folks in that town do remember like perhaps the uh, perhaps the one who was uh, uh, dis- uh dispensing uh psychedelic plants uh who uh that was a weird part yeah um i don't fully get why they took drugs maybe it was to like calm themselves or get in the zone to fight back i don't fully understand or maybe it's a tradition uh from the times when they did this um you know what it, you know what a lot of this reminded me of is um you know I grew up in Fiji and we used to visit small I grew up in a city in Fiji but we did you know like Fiji's small enough that you would visit villages sure and and I you know like a lot of the way the village operates you know like just even the the sort of the the dusty roads that you'd walk in on flip-flops just remind you like there was just a trigger in my brain to like oh yeah this is what it was like growing up Sure. You know, in small towns and stuff and wandering through small towns. And like the oddities, like the Coca-Cola vending machine that would be there and it would be like this sort of focal point in the town. Um, but um, this place had those weird trucks with the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, weird trucks. And like the DJ who's like announcing everything. I, uh, I dug that. Yeah, I would yeah. actually want that in the town I live in. <laughs> but it felt like the kind of thing you would get in like a really small town where, you know, like where, you know, for. Uh, this is this is this will sound pejorative because because um, of something that um, Mendoza Fila said, um, but it feels like a simpler you know sort of life. Um, but but it, but it's not. It's complex and rich. But but I I when when you know like when the first woman comes back uh, and I should get her name uh, at some point. 
Uh, when she comes back and she immediately meets the uh, the older man, he immediately gives her some of that you know some of the that plant, and she takes it. Um, in Fiji, when you go to a small village, you often drink kava when you go to a town, you know, and like it's it's while kava can be hallucinatory or sort of um, at least uh, in some pa- in some cases a barbiturate, mm-hmm. um, it's like a traditional thing you do, you know, like it's 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 impolite sure. not to. It's how people are greeted. It's um, it's kind of part of the culture of being there and accepting oneself as being on somebody else's um, on somebody else's land. So I kind of just read it that way. Sure. Um, again, I don't have the, the sort of full context of Brazilian history or Brazilian understanding these smaller towns to sort of really fully grasp that. But but again, we all live in the same country. It's called capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The thing about the museum. Uh, the, the, the part. I was very sort of touch and go, as I've sort of described about the film overall. There were great parts. There were parts that lost me. But the part that, like, solidified this as, like, you know what? Fuck yeah, movie. Like, good job. Was when they are cleaning up after they massacre their massacrers. Yeah. Um, and they're, the, the, the woman who I'm, I'm assuming is in charge of the museum is instructing the people how to clean up the blood on the floor yeah but there's a few handprints on the walls and a couple other things and she's like yep clean up here don't touch the walls leave it all like it is leave it yeah like because they want to display what happened here there's even a thing they they hung up one of the the garbs of the people who who came to kill them they put it on a on a rack you see it in a mirror yeah and and i was just like holy shit because like, they, they they're basically they're collecting history, and, yes. and now and, this and they is want, part of the history. And they don't want, they don't want it to be forgotten. These are people that came in and tried to murder them because, mm. like, and they, like, like they're like, no, no. Here's another here's another example of us fighting back and winning. And granted, you know, the end of this film, their their shitbox mayor, Tony Jr., <laughs> yeah. uh, who they put on a demon mask and make him ride off into a cactus field and on a donkey. Um, I hope that donkey comes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the, the DJ is like that donkey better be unscathed when it comes back from its miserable journey. Like and <laughs> it was just like that a lot. Um, but the the way that. um you know this town is 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 done dirty by everyone they want they want it to to be remembered well i think i think that that mayor represents the kind of corruption that allows them to be um forgotten like that Exploited you know in the first place they're supposed to be getting the fix the water fix which apparently has been a problem yeah they they, they, they the, that guy sold out this place to them they took it off yeah, the yeah. map. And, they and did he, the, like and he arrives when he arrives back with the with the the sort of nicely air-conditioned van with water bottles inside it you realize that he is he's treating this as like death tourism um now here's the question yeah. this is also a bit of a where it lost me because like did he just think <laughs> yeah. that those eight people were gonna mow down like a hundred i don't know and, and then he was just gonna pick them up also i didn't understand the coffin truck yeah so the coffin truck i think was the way in which they were going to remove the bodies because it is. And, but, and, but again, and, that doesn't make sense. There's like maybe 12 coffins. Like it, the plan doesn't like, and again, the no, movie's not about do, the plan. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, <laughs> but it does not make sense. Uh, and I was a little confused. <laughs> yeah. 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 But obviously, I mean, I mean, you can take away the kind of key points here, which is that they've done it before this, you know, like he was, he was selling out his people. And, and I think, uh, you know, in terms of the reading I'd done about Brazilian political history, uh, Bolsonaro, uh, Gia Bolsonaro, who's the current president of uh, Brazil. Um, this film was made prior to that. But interestingly, um, uh, Filiaz talks about the fact that the film was kind of written under the under the rise of Donald Trump. Mm. And they talked about how that they they actually were less less focused on Brazilian politics as much as they were focused on American politics. Um, and they had yeah. seen the rise of Donald Trump and 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 thought that this was a case where there was a rise of a type of uh, uh, politic, uh, a body politic that was vehemently dangerous um, in ways that even, uh, you know, if, if you're not Republican, um, you could kind of say you could live under a Republican government uh, versus what we were living under with Donald or what they saw 
as the potential for Donald Trump. And uh, Bolsonaro, I think, came in and one of the first things he did uh, was remove um, uh, protected land ownership for the Amazons. Uh, and, you know, yes. like, you know, so so in a way, while the film was written before Bolsonaro took power, it, it kind of um, preempts the kind of, you know, and Bolsonaro and Donald Trump have a sort of uh, alignment in terms of uh, political ideology. Uh, it, it underscores the, the idea that there is a, a, an undermining of the people from whom you are supposed to protect. Um, and that is what I think fundamentally at the heart of this, it's not a, you know, again, not, not trying to rag on the hunt, but it's not a left versus right issue. Right. It's fundamentally a human case of, of not, having the, not having the capacity for human empathy. And there, there's sort of an interesting thing, though, because I think, like, I'm actually 100% with you when you say that you went on board with this movie and it was difficult to click into. And that's that thing where I was kind of going, I don't know if I have the vocabulary to understand what this film is doing because I felt that way as I was watching the movie. Sure. But upon reflection of the movie, it actually, it's, I think it, I think it does work really well to highlight the complexities of the issue in a sort of nuanced way that, that a film like The Hunt, again, not trying to rag on The Hunt, um, isn't able to. I think you to, are. I think I, you've mentioned it enough. Where let's yeah. say we're ragging on The Hunt. What's we're ragging on The Hunt. Yeah, we're ragging on The Hunt. Um, but but the, the, the sort of, like the fact that Udu Kier's character ends up killing people on his own, um, you know, from his own team, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, like there's a self-destructive quality that he has where he's just like, um, there's no care or empathy for the boundaries of even the rules that have been set up for him. Uh -huh. He kills people. He kills the coffin bearers. He kills a dog. He kills two people. And you know, he keeps lying about it. And he keeps lying about it. And it's because there's this sort of like just complete lack of empathy, which I think is But he doesn't that kill women. Doesn't kill women. Well, he says he doesn't kill women. I know. Oh, <laughs> but again, like we see him, well, we see him not kill a woman. We see him kill. Oh, by the way, Sonia Braha, who plays the... Um, uh, the, doctor. the doctor is uh, is a well regarded uh, Brazilian actress. Uh, she was in Aquarius, which was uh, Villano's uh, previous film as well. Which I think I, there's an interesting thing that happened, which is that uh, with Aquarius at the Cannes Film Festival, they uh, ran a protest uh, as the as the film was being screened, and it was, became a focus of embarrassment for the country mm. um, that these Brazilian filmmakers had gone to Cannes on the world stage and protested that their government was under a coup d'état at the time, and um, I think one of the thing, first things Bolsonaro did done was that they uh, removed funding for the arts for Brazilian, you know, Brazilian film. And um, uh, Felino talks really sort of um, passionately about that was that when it premiered, you know, and this is, I'm quoting from him here, when it premiered in 2019, it was actually a, the, the film's commercial success, as well as the capacity to steer debate that threatened the government. Baccarat's box office numbers, the fact that it was screened internationally at one prize at Cannes, that it premiered to great acclaim in the United States and it all was hugely embarrassing for the government that does not believe in Brazilian-made products or Brazilian culture because cinema, after all, is a combination of these factors, commerce and art. And this is an interesting quote that I thought you might like. For me personally, cinema is a powerful voice that speaks about identity and citizenship, about the makings of one's place in the world. So when Baccarat is played on Brazilian TV alongside the Avengers or Spider-Man 4, I take it seriously and I think that that is very important. And... To me, that's a really telling thing about what works about this film is that it is a bigger genre piece. It has that sort of Carpenter-esque sort of big genre play, but it is entrenched in place, sure. right? Like, And that's kind of where maybe you and I felt a little unmoored in yeah, the film. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's a good quote. I think that's a good statement. Uh, side note, does Brazil have Spider-Man 4? Because I've never <laughs> seen Spider-Man 4. That's what his quote is. He he. You know what? I'll give him that one on good intent, given how many fucking Spider-Man movies there are. I am just jealous <laughs> that he, they might have Spider-Man 4 and we don't. He, there are so many reboots of Spider-Man that I'm going to give him that one in good faith. Uh, as, as will I. I'm just saying, If listen, if you got Spider-Man 4, <laughs> you send it to me. I want um, it. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's this movie is set slightly in the future. So, you know. Oh, you touche. Touche. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think my final my final thought is, while this movie did not connect with me in in, in all the ways a, 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 a favorite film of mine does, 
Uh, it is well worth your time, and it was well worth mine. Um, and you and and I do agree with Sheer. I think upon second viewing or clicking through, even the way that Jacob described with Tenant, um, I I think there's a lot to be gleaned here, and I think it's I think it's wonderful that that this movie, for lack of a better term, embarrassed the, the Brazilian government. But I just hope that with that embarrassment comes sort of eventual chipping away of the bad things like there's one thing to like be embarrassed like i mean truth be told we're our country uh, the united states is a fucking hyper embarrassment and and they just keep the, the hits keep on coming even after we narrowly narrowly got rid of donald trump <laughs> now after inciting a riot we're like oh but like like forget about it like and it's just anyway point being um I hope that embarrassment does end up somewhere positive because this movie, this movie um, has a lot to say and more to say than I understood, but it also got me interested in learning about what it was trying to say. And I think that's probably the biggest compliment that I can give it is that even though it didn't connect with me on a like pure entertainment level or even sort of a cerebral level, I was interested in the messaging that it was trying to get across through its subtext. Um, yeah, so I, I would say 100% check it out uh, when when you can. Yeah, and I, I think I'm 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 right there with you, which is that which is the same thing. I I felt unmoored with the context to provide it because I like you, you know, found it sort of not meandering, but but unsure of how the film was operating. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was just a little bit of a. Uh, a leap to kind of figure out how this actually all worked together. But I did sense that it was working well. It was me who didn't have the context to fully understand it. And upon reflection and, and reading and actually just revisiting scenes from it in my mind and actually, you know, literally just revisiting scenes from it. uh, I think there's a richness to the tapestry that this film is hung upon that is worth um, that, that, that raises the enjoyment factor of it. Put it this way, I dreaded seeing Tenant for a second time. I did not dread seeing this for a second time. Well, there um, you go. Despite you know not quite fully enjoying it, um, I I I'm I'm glad we go, and I'm glad when we do a film like this that pushes us out of our comfort zone. I'm glad yeah. that we were able to you know because one of the things that would concern me is that we would sit here and not know how to discuss this film because we both felt sort of you know uh, somewhat stranded by it. But actually negotiate, you know, like trying to negotiate with the movie and come up with a critical <laughs> reading of it, I think is actually a really good thing to do. It's, it is a know, nice exercise. It yeah. keeps it keeps the discussion muscle sharp. And whether we did it well or not is over oh, to you. That, you doesn't, can, that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You can write us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. If you have seen this film or if you have, I'm really curious if you've felt that feeling of not quite understanding how a film is operating. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people have had that experience with Tenant recently. Um, a film I can think of off the top of my head uh, that having that experience with, with uh, early on was A Clockwork Orange. Uh, I can certainly, you know, see that. And, and you know, having watched A Clockwork Orange a few more times, I've kinda, I, I fully am in tune with it now. But I'm curious sure. if there are films that you've watched where you're like, I don't know how this is working, but I'm kind of, uh, or to quote um, from Knives Out, compels me though. well it compels me to thank you for listening to this the only podcast about Bacurau Uh, Shahir when you are not quoting uh, the most out of knives at the end of our podcast where can folks find you what was that character's name by the way the one played by Daniel Craig the beast name I forgot what it was Uh, Uh, Clouseau no no yeah yeah. (laughs) good yeah, good one. I was, uh, golf clap for that. Yeah, golf clap. Yeah, golf clap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find me at my website, www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are piloting the most rinky-dinkiest of UFO drones, where can people find you? You can find me doing my best Benoit Blanc impression, piloting mm-hmm. that little beastie over at my website, M-A-T-G-H-E-W-K-R-O-L-D-O-F-L-I-W-K-R-O-L-D-O-F-L-I-W-K-R-O-L-D-O-F-L-I-W-K-R-O-L-D-O-F-L-I-W-K-R-O-
it's some of the best art I think we've done on the show. It's so fucking evocative and good. And uh, please go check that out and share it with your friends. Uh, next week, we will be back with our scheduled. Holy shit. We've got a schedule. We, we scheduled uh, a film. So next week is Minari. Please check it out on A24. The only way to see this is on A24's virtual screening. And like that's limited, I guess. Yeah. Like, which is weird. Um, it's, there's distribution reasons for doing it. I'm not 100% fully uh, certain of why, but yes, it is limited release yeah. right now. Uh, and then afterward is... Uh, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, which will be available on Hulu, I believe on February 19th, but will be available to stream by the time we get to discussing it. Uh, and then... We will finally there, you know, like we're also missing. We, we, we haven't got to Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which is another film that I think we should count in 2020. There's just a lot of film. Basically, we are going to be living in 2020 till the end of 2022. Uh, yeah, but that so, wasn't a surprise. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we'll try. We're trying our best here, people. Stick with us. Don't <laughs> don't pressure us. I see you judging us. And I listen, know what you're doing. If you know anyone at Philip Hughes Smart Lighting, <laughs> let them know. That we were singing their praises as the best midlife crisis buy you could possibly have. <laughs> it's so weird. I don't think Phil Hughes advertises on podcasts, but I think it's an untapped market. Because they we, should. Because I feel like I feel like the demographic of podcast <laughs> listeners is the same people that want to link their Spotify to colored lights in their home. I'm about to lose our sponsorship deal with Phillips Hue right now when I say these. But these light bulbs are too damn expensive. Oh, they're the way one. too expensive. They're like 30 bucks a light bulb. Yeah. That's it, ridiculous. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but they're supposed to last like forever. So yeah. uh, also, they have an affordable payment. But no, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, everybody, we'll talk at you next week. Thank you so much. Take care. And uh, yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye. Till we see. Till we talk about Minari. Yeah. Minari. Minari. I don't even. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>